in fellowship to worshiping God in His Word. So if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, and if I could have some of the ushers go out to the back and the side and let folks know we're getting started. Excellent. Mike, would you mind shutting those side doors too? Thank you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. We're reading verses 1 through 29. A fairly lengthy passage. It's a picture of how Paul is standing and making a defense. He's been accused by the Jews that he is against the law. And here we see really the beginning of the end of the book of Acts. And the the final stages in Paul's defense as he travels and he's, he's heading on his way to imprisonment. So let's read together Acts 22, verses 1 through 29. This is God's holy inspired word. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. And to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out on the whips, out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen that he had bound him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our hope, our trust, our confidence is in you, it's in your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would communicate your words this morning through me. Lord, I'm aware that I am frail and weak in myself. God, I have no confidence in myself, but my confidence is in you. God, your word is mighty and powerful. Your spirit is able to speak to our hearts, to penetrate our thoughts, our minds, to open up our eyes. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have your way with us this morning, that you would speak through me your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, a long time after the Apostle Paul lived and a few hundred years ago, now almost a thousand years ago, actually, there was a man named Martin Luther. And this man named Martin Luther, he stood as an example then of what it looks like to to stand in the face of legalists, people who want to be justified by their own righteousness, who are looking to trust in their works for the right standing before God. And so in April of 1521, a, a month and almost a thousand years ago, he was on his way to a church meeting called a diet. It's, it's not, a, not something you, you, know, you don't uh, take off from eating food. It was, a, it was a council or a meeting called a diet of worms because that was the name of the city, not because it had anything to do with worms. And he was on the way to this council, this meeting in the city of worms, and he was a peer, to, peer before all of his peers and before the, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And, and he was hearing rumors of how he might be thrown in prison how his family might be thrown in prison, how he himself might face the penalty of death because Martin Luther was taking a stand against the legalists of his day. He was taking a stand against the law. He was standing up for salvation by grace alone through faith alone. King Charles demanded he recant his writing and his testimony and the archbishop Johann Eck asked him if he'd repudiate his books And the errors that they contained, and his future was in the balance, and it said that he was nervous, and he was sweating, and he stood, and he said, I'm going to answer you without without horns and without teeth. And then he said his famous speech, he says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept 
the authority of popes and councils. For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive, listen to this, to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recount anything, recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. It was perhaps one of the greatest moments in church, modern church history. And, and, you, know, you, you wonder, how in the world did he stand so firm? You know, I, I like to imagine that, that Martin Luther, who became a believer really through reading the writings of Paul, I like to imagine that he was reflecting back on a verse like this when, when he saw Paul standing up for his defense against the legalists in his day. And how God enabled Paul and God enabled Martin Luther and God continues to enable people today to stand against those who put confidence in the flesh, who put confidence in our own ability to stand righteous or to stand right before God. Even more than Martin Luther, Paul, he was standing in the first century against this prevailing tide that trusted in keeping the law of Moses to be accepted before God. And had Paul caved in, had Paul caved in, I, I, I shudder to think what church history, what Christian history would have looked like. It certainly would have been different. But that day, he stood, and he stood a weak man, but he stood trusting in the grace of God. And he stood firmly against the legalists in his day. And he showed what it looks like for a Christian to relate to legalists in the law. And I believe God's got some things for us to learn from them. You know, Luke, he's writing a book and we're nearing the the final chapters of the book of Acts. And from here on, really, all we're going to see is Paul is no longer on his missionary journeys. He is now going from place to place in captivity. And you're going to see him making six defenses. And this is the first of his six defenses. Then you're going to see a travel journal. And Luke actually spends a quarter of the book of Acts on the defenses of the Christian faith. And you have to stop and think for a moment, Luke, why are you spending so much time, beginning with this, why are you spending so much time on these defenses of the Christian faith? And, and actually somebody's done a word study and, and seen that uh, they, he actually spent more words on defenses of the Christian faith than he spent on a testimony to the witness of the Christian faith. And that's because so often the Christian faith is under attack not only from without, but often from those closest and sometimes from within. And we're going to see various types of attacks against the Christian faith. And here we see that the faith of Jesus Christ is being attacked by those, possibly, some of whom claim to be Christians, but are still hanging on to hope and trust in the law for their right standing before God. Trusting in the law, or trusting in their own good works, to put it in modern day terms. Trusting in their ability to do what's right, to be pleasing to God, and to be accepted by Him. And, and so it's important that we see what it looks like for a Christian to stand against the legalists in the face of the law. And so that's the main, kind of the main idea we're going to be looking at today is what, what it looks like for a Christian to relate to legalists and the law. In chapter 21, we, we read last week, if you weren't here, you can go back and read in your Bible of how James, 
He received Paul. He was happy to receive him. Paul told about all the great things that God had done. And then right after that, though, James said, hey, Paul, we got this little problem here. People think that you're preaching against the law. So could you do us a favor? Could you pay for these four guys to go and and fulfill a Nazarite vow? And could you put up the money for them to do that? Could Could you give an offering? And could you do that with them as well? So everybody knows that you're not against the law. Now, this wasn't necessary to do. But Paul, because he was humbling himself for the sake of the unity of the church and and for the sake of the spread of the gospel to those very Jews, he went and he did that. But when the Jews, they saw him in the temple, and some Jews from Ephesus saw him in the temple, they, they, they created a riot. And they said, here's the guy who keeps preaching about the law, against the law, everywhere he goes. And not only that, he's brought a Gentile into the city with him, into the temple with him. Because they had seen a guy named Trophimus in the city with him. Now they were wrong, they were mistaken. And in the midst of carrying out these Jewish customs, the Jews wrongly accused him of teaching against the law. And they, they, they weren't accurate. He did, not, he did not brought a Gentile into the courtyard but the reason they were so upset is because the, the inner courtyard, right, at, right around the temple, there was a four-foot-high wall, that, that stone wall that went all around the temple. And on that stone wall, every few feet was inscribed warnings to any Gentile who would dare to enter into the, the inner courtyard of the temple grounds. And it says, on penalty of death, Gentiles will enter. And the Romans actually allowed immediate death, the immediate death penalty right there on the spot for any Gentile who would enter in. And they thought that Paul had done that, and so they take Paul, they rush him out of the temple, they shut those, those inner gates behind him. They start beating on Paul, and they're trying to kill him. But the Romans had set up a fort, the fort of Antonia, right outside of the inner courtyard and the outer courtyard of the temple, and they set it up there strategically so that they could see all the goings on, because when the feast would happen, the, the numbers would swell and the Romans knew that when the numbers got big, there was likely going to be some problems. And so they had this courtyard, a fort right outside the temple gates. And so the commander of the Roman guard, he sees this happening. He runs down with centurions, commander of hundreds, and soldiers. And they rescue Paul. And they're carrying him out. He's bloody. He's bruised. He's beaten. They're carrying him out on their shoulders because the mob is about to attack him still. In the middle of that, Paul asks... Instead of being rescued to safety, he asks if he can stand and make a defense to the legalists. And he does something surprising. In verse 21, if you look down your Bibles, he addresses them. And notice he doesn't address them as his enemies. He doesn't address them hostily. He doesn't address them in pride. He doesn't address them self-righteously. He addresses them as brothers and fathers. You see, Paul was motivated by a desire to, to defend the gospel to the Jews because he wants them to trust in the gospel for themselves and not be blinded by legalism. And so he speaks very affectionately to them. These are the same people who just finished beating him. Could you imagine that? If you just got beaten up and you're bloody you're swollen, you're bruised. And yet he had such a desire to see them rescued and such an affection and a love for them that he spoke to them as brothers and fathers. And the first example that I want to draw your attention to of the Apostle Paul and what he demonstrates for us and of what it looks like to be a Christian 
relating to legalists is that he identifies with the legalists. So here we see Paul identifying with the legalists. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? How do you react normally when, when somebody wrongly accuses you? Do you think, yeah, I understand that. You know, when, when my wife and I get in an argument and she accuses me of doing something that I don't think I did, which I probably really did, or I, I accuses me of saying something with a tone, you know, and, I, and I'm being defensive, my first reaction is not to think, you know, you could be right. You know, I can identify, I can understand how you think that. You know, if we're on our guard, maybe on our best moments, but Paul has just been beaten, and yet what does he do? What does he do? We see that he's identifying with the legalists. He's not being self-righteous. You know, I was thinking if, if, if you've ever had your motives called into question, it's not a natural response. You ever tried to do something right and it completely backfires on you? That's kind of what Paul is doing here. He tried to do the right thing, completely backfires on him. But instead of getting angry, he identifies and says, you know what, I understand. I, I was like you too. I was zealous for the law. So Paul opens up his defense and he identifies with them. Even though he'd been brutally beaten, he wants to address them to make a defense for the gospel. Why? Because the good news about Jesus Christ was more important than his personal vindication and his personal comfort. He's not being self-preservationist here, like often my tendency is. He addresses them in the Hebrew dialect that says he's most likely speaking Aramaic, it's a common language of the Jewish population at the time, so we know he's not defending himself to the Romans. This is address meant for his brothers, his fathers, his Jewish countrymen. And the remarkable thing is that after being wrongly accused, he's still hoping to persuade his fellow Jews the truth of the good news about Jesus. And he doesn't disown them. He refers to them as family members and he speaks their language and says they become even more quiet when they hear him speaking his language. And it explains why and how he's been where they are. He identifies. And he says, you know, as a fellow Jew, I, I, I was, I'm a Jew and I was born in Tarsus. But I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the most popular, the most well-known, widespread, most famous teacher of the law in that day, Gamaliel the Elder. He, he was one of the teachers of the, the preeminent school of thought in that day, of the, the school of Hillel. And he tells them, I learned the very strict manner of the laws of our Father. I can identify with you. I understand the law. I was zealous for the law. I was, I was brought up as a Jew. I was raised in this city, and I was tutored under Gamaliel. I had, some, I had the best knowledge of the law. And he identifies with him, and he says, I, I was zealous for God, just like you are even now. He says, I understand. I understand where you're coming from. I once was where you are. I wonder if, if I could do that or you could do that if we were in a s- similar situation. Somebody's just beating us up. We say, you know, I, I get it. I get why you're upset. But let me tell you the truth. You see, Paul had been transformed by the, the grace of God so much that it, it permeated everything he did. So instead of being self-righteous, he humbly is saying, look, I understand you're zealous for the law. I've been there too. You know, and I was thinking, if when people accuse us, when we're going and we're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, and they get angry with us, I wonder if instead of responding back to them in, in defensively, our defense is more like the Apostle Paul's and saying, you know what, I, I get it, I understand why you're upset. I thought like you did too. 
I thought the same way. It's understandable you'd be upset. You know why? Because it challenges your very confidence. It challenges the confidence in who you are. It challenges your worldview. It challenges everything that you know. I understand that. And that's what Paul's doing. He says, I understand where you're coming from. And he, he also explains, though, I'm not any better than the legalists. You, you legalists who are attacking me, I'm not any better than you. And it completely disarms them. It says they listen to every word at the later, latter part of this chapter. They're listening to every word. They're silent. That's really remarkable. They're just yelling at this guy. They're just beating him up. And, and yet, as he identifies with them, it, 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 it gives him a context to speak. His trust, he says, is, was once in being able to be righteous on his own. And like many today, he trusted in his outward obedience to the law. In verses 4 and 5, he says, I once too, not only was I zealous for the law, he says in verse 4 and 5, I once persecuted the way that he's now following. And he did it so zealously and faithfully that he says, I secured letters from the chief priest and from the council of elders to persecute them, to bring them back in chains. I was the preeminent legalist, so I understand where you're coming from. I'm not any better than you, but let me share the good news with you. We can learn from that, can't we? You know, how often do we react poorly when somebody else accuses us of something maybe that we even did do? You know, somebody accuses us of not following God because we don't keep the law like they do. You know, sometimes in, in this area, it, there's a history of, of people subtly trusting in external behavior. Um, by the grace of God, I think he's, he's redeeming that. He's setting, setting people free in the city from that. But there is a long history of you can subtly trust in God's grace, but then you begin to trust in practices instead of, instead of God's word. And then you suddenly go from trusting God to trusting in what you're doing for your confidence. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been confronted with somebody who's legalistic and they come up to you and they say, you know, why do you dress like that in church? You should dress up. Or why do you do this? Or why do you do that? The temptation for a lot of us is to be self-righteous. And yet that's not what Paul does. He says, I I get it. I, I have that same temptation. You know what? I'm a legalist just like you. And I think all of us really have that same temptation. It's a human temptation that all of us are prone to is to trust in our, in our external obedience, to trust in our practice. And it's not something that just was with Paul. 1,500 and some odd years later, Martin Luther confronted the same thing. And we confront the same thing in our day. So Paul shows them, even though he was zealous for the law, he, he shows them his devotion was misplaced. And then he demonstrates something else for us. He shows us what living like a Christian in the face of legalists looks like, and he shows us that legalism is opposed to God. That's the second thing we're going to see, is that legalism is opposed to God. You know, Paul tells them that he thought that he was doing what was right. He thought he was actually carrying out God's purposes. You ever been that way before? And then you realize, oh my goodness, that... I really wasn't honoring God. I was more concerned with my image than I was concerned with God's glory. Or I was more concerned with what people thought of me than I was concerned about what people thought of God. And Paul tells them the account of his change of his heart and mind. It didn't come from himself or from any man. And he shows them that the Lord Jesus confronted him himself. Here, Paul, you have this picture here. He's traveling to Damascus. You know the story from earlier in Acts. And in the middle of the heat of the noonday sun, 
And, and why he gives that little detail is because in the middle of the day, the sun shines brightest, right? But this light was so bright that it made the, the noonday sun seem like the moon. And so this, this light shines down so bright in the middle of the noonday sun that it blinds Paul. The people around him see the light and they hear this noise, but God didn't enable them to understand the voice of the Lord but it's so sudden and so surprising that Paul falls to the ground. The people around him see it. This is not an not imagination. This is, this is not heat exhaustion. He's not seeing a mirage here. And Saul audibly heard a voice from heaven that called to him personally. Look down your Bibles. It says, Saul, Saul. That was Paul's name before God changed it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What Jesus was saying is, you think you're carrying out my will, but your legalism, your trust in the law is in opposition to me. And so we can see that legalism, it's opposed to God's purposes. It's it's not just different than God's purposes or additional to God's purposes. It's, It's a persecution. It's a direct opposition of God's purposes. He thought he was on God's mission, but he was actually opposing God. In the voice from heaven, it says, look down your Bibles, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. In that moment, Paul knew that the Jesus he had heard about really was risen, really was Lord, and that all of Paul's life up to that point had been built on a, on a wrong foundation. You see, he didn't, he didn't realize that all of the law actually pointed to the Messiah and Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul, he wasn't delusional. He hears the sound of the voice of Jesus, so do the people around him. And in his zeal for the law, though, he finds out he'd be imposing the giver of the law. And, and that's what it's like for you and for me when we when we start to subtly trust in our own righteousness. It's not just a negative thing, it's where we're actually opposing God's purposes. God's purpose is that we would have no trust, no confidence, no hope in ourselves and our own ability to stand before him rightly on our own. His purpose was that we would only hope in Jesus' ability, the righteous one that he talks about in these verses. And so whenever we start to subtly trust in our own ability to either add to our merit or when we lack confidence because of our lack of merit, it's, it stands in opposition to God's purposes. You see, God calls us to trust in Jesus, who alone was able to keep the law. And Paul, he realizes, he's, once he realizes he's opposing to God, opposing God, he submits to him and he asks him, he says, Lord, what should I do? It's a pretty good question, right? If you get knocked down, you just find out that Jesus is truly the Son of God. The one you've been persecuting is the risen Lord. He is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the law. It's a pretty good question. What what should I do now? Maybe it's a question for us today when when we realize that we've been trusting in our own ability or trusting in our own righteousness or how we appear before people. Maybe that's a good question for us too. Lord, what should I do now? And so the Lord tells him to go to Damascus and to be told all that's appointed for him to do. So Paul discovers his life is not in his own hands, his future is not self-destined. 
He knows now that Jesus is the one who appointed him to his life and his work even before he knew what he was to do. And so he tells the story how he's led by the hand of Damascus. And then in verse 12, Paul makes sure to point out that Ananias is a, a devout man according to the law. Ananias is following the law, but he also is following the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. You see, the law is not bad, but trusting in the law is. God set up the law to point out our need for him and to show us how we need him to live for him. He never gave us the law so that we would trust in it for our salvation. And so Ananias comes and he he speaks to Paul and Paul's healed. And this term, the righteous one, that we see in verse 14, he says the righteous one, it's kind of a unique term that stands out. It was a term that was used in the Old Testament as well to refer to the coming Messiah, the chosen one of God, who would come and be the culmination of the law, the fulfillment of the law. And Paul has been appointed as a modern-day prophet, an apostle of the righteous one, to now hear his words and to be a witness for him to everyone of what Paul has seen and heard. It's important to, to take notice of that because the message that Paul preached was not one that he made up. It was one given to him by the righteous one, by Jesus himself. The risen Jesus directly gave Paul his commission. His authority wasn't coming from himself. Our authority to preach the gospel doesn't come from ourselves either. It comes from the risen Lord, but he gives us that authority. And so we see that Paul's commission is from Jesus, the Messiah of God, directly. But even though God had, he had appointed him to be his witness, he still had to respond to God's call. And so we see the third, the third demonstration, really, of living in the face of the legalist is we see Paul calling on the righteous one to make clean. He's calling on the righteous one to make him clean. It wasn't enough that, that Paul knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. It wasn't enough that he would respond to him. It, it, Paul needed to call on his name, to place his faith, his hope, his trust in the name of Jesus. It's not enough for any of us that we know the truth of who Jesus is. It's not enough for any of us that we just know that God is true, that he exists, that we know that Jesus is his son, that we believe that that's not enough. We have to call on his name to have our sins washed away. Paul needed to turn from trusting his ability to keep the law and, and call the name of Jesus, the righteous one, to be saved. And the Bible tells us that anyone who calls on his name will be saved. That's a hope. That's a promise for everybody here. That's the same hope that I have. That's the same hope that everybody here who is called a Christian has. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're not sure. What God's calling you to do is to to call on the name of the Lord, to, to cry out to Jesus and say, I have no hope in myself. I put my confidence, my trust in you. And, and, he, and he says here to Paul, and he says to us, that your sins will be washed away. Paul had stood condemned by God. He needed to call the name of Jesus and demonstrate his turning from trusting in himself and trusting in the righteousness of Christ by being baptized. He's not saying here that baptism washes away sins. In a couple weeks, we're going to celebrate with at least one person that I'm aware of um, them being made alive in Jesus. And they're going to express their faith and the fact that they have already been, had all their sins washed away by being baptized. And that's what baptism is. It's an outward picture 
of, you know, you, you picture the baptism waters and why we like to immerse. Now, it's not a law that you immerse people when you baptize. There are other acceptable modes of baptism. But why we, why we love that picture, this normative in, in historic Christianity, is that it's a picture of being dead in your sins, of being buried with Christ under the waters of baptism, if you will, and being raised to new life and putting your hope, your faith, your trust in him to raise you up. That's why we raise people up. It's a symbol of how Jesus raises us up from the, from the waters of death to new life, and, and he gives us new life. And so we see that Paul, he's, he's submitted to the will of God's chosen one. He responds in repentance we know that he, he called in the name of the Lord. He was baptized in response. And then in verse 15, Ananias told Paul he would be a witness for the righteous one. He'd be a witness for the righteous one. And Paul, he's demonstrating that he is sent as a witness for the righteous one. That's what he's, he's, he's communicating to them. We see here a picture of how Paul is sent as a witness for the righteous one. And really, that's, that's what we're sent as as well. We're sent as witnesses. We're sent as emissaries, as ambassadors. When you think of someone who is nominated to be the ambassador for the United States and, and set apart to, sent to a far country, I don't know, Azerbaijan or someplace like that, that you, know, you can think of as far away, um, he, he's sent as a witness. He's sent as an emissary. Just like we are sent as emissaries, as witnesses to the nations. Now for us, our nation is very far away from Israel where Paul came from. And he was sent as a rich witness, but not a witness of himself. And that's important to notice. He's not just sharing his story. He's sharing about God and how God had made him alive. And he's a witness not for his own message, but he's a witness for the message of Jesus, the righteous one. And so it was in the midst of the temple, the place that God that was regarded as holy to God, that Paul was praying. He goes back. He didn't neglect Jewish customs. He, after he was saved, he went back to Jerusalem. He tells, and he went back to the temple, and he was praying in the temple, and it was in the midst of praying there that he fell into a trance. It means that he had a vision. He was praying, and, and he had a vision of God in prayer. And, and the risen Jesus warns him to leave Jerusalem because the Jews there won't accept his testimony about them. And, and Paul's a little naive when he's first beginning his, his his ministry, and he says, no, but Jesus, I think they really will listen because, you know, before, I tortured them. You know, I tortured the way, and so they'll really, they'll really listen to my message now because they know I used to be against it, and they'll see the change that happened to me. And Jesus says, no, they're not going to listen. You need to go. And so Paul is relating his story to the Jews because he's hoping, he's hoping that he will win some. He's hoping that they will listen. He's hoping that they will be made alive. But as soon as they hear him say that he has been sent to the nations they respond in anger and you have to wonder why did they do that why did they respond in anger why did they get so upset when they were listening so intently and they seemed like he just he just had them there in the palm of his hand and all of a sudden he just mentioned and the righteous one sent me to the gentiles and all of a sudden they start yelling and screaming they throw off their cloaks they throw up dust into the air must have been a kind of odd picture right people throwing off their cloaks dust into the air we can't really relate to that in modern day but they actually got the message. They just didn't respond to the message humbly. They didn't receive it. They understood that what Paul was saying was that the Gentiles didn't need to become Jews 
to receive God's promises. They needed to come to Jesus directly. You see, the, the Jews thought it was acceptable for a Gentile to be converted to a Jew and then maybe through that to receive God's promises because through the Jews are the promises, but they didn't realize that that's through the righteous one that the promises of God come. And so they thought that that was blasphemy when Paul was saying that the Gentiles can come to God apart from the law. They thought that was blasphemy. And so they throw off their cloaks. They're probably getting ready to stone Paul. They're throwing off the cloaks because they used to throw off the cloaks and they prepared a stone. If you remember, that's what Paul was holding the cloaks, watching out over the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. And they're throwing off their cloaks and they're getting ready to stone him. And they threw dust up in the air. It was a symbol of them shaking off what Paul was saying as blasphemy. Paul lets them know, you know, at first he didn't agree that, that he thought that they would listen to him. Jesus tells him to go because he sent him far away to the Gentiles and then, and then they react so violently. And yet God had called Paul to be a witness for the righteous one. And God's called us by his grace to be a witness for the righteous one. He sent us to our neighborhoods, our community centers, our schools, our workplaces to be sent as witnesses for the righteous one. And we might experience opposition. We might experience hardship, but yet Paul's modeling here, what does it look like to to love other people in the face of this opposition? And it didn't go very well for him. Instead of believing his testimony and trusting the righteous one, they oppose Paul. And so the last thing that Luke shows us is that Paul, he's opposed by the legalists, but he's not fearing the law. You have to wonder, how can this guy still stand? He's being opposed by the legalists, but yet he seems to be very calm and composed. It's kind of strange, isn't it? He seems to be very calm and composed. He's not getting upset. He's not getting wigged out. He knows God's plans will succeed. You see, the Jews were understanding what Paul was saying and they were listening to him, but they were responding to Paul because they, they didn't believe that righteousness could come apart from the law. The legalistic Jews, they're upset that Paul says his call is to bring the Gentiles into God's blessing and it's came, claiming really that Jews and Gentiles are equal in God's sight and both equally must come before the righteous, through the righteous one. And so they raise their voices and they stopped their ears. They, they thought that he was blaspheming. They pronounced judgment on him. But before the crowd could do anything, we know that the tribune, the Roman commander, he orders him to be brought into the barracks. He's like, that's enough. Okay, we're done here. You let, I, I'll let you have your peace, but you're done. So he brings him into the barracks. And then he says that he's going to torture Paul by flogging until they got to the truth. And by the way, this so-called examination, as we have in the Scripture, examination by flogging, this wasn't like you're sitting down and taking a test. This was a brutal examination where they would take um, a flagellato or flagellato, I can't even pronounce the thing. Uh, they, would, they would take an instrument of torture. It was, it was a wooden rod and it had long leather straps attached to it. And at the end of these leather straps, they tied bits of bone and metal. It was actually the same thing that they scourged Jesus with. 
the same instrument. And so he says, take him into the barracks and scourge him. And often scourging would bring them to the point of death. And if not that, it would leave people crippled. And so they're going to take him in to examine him by flogging. And they would reserve that kind of brutal punishment only for slaves and criminals. It was brutal. It was demeaning punishment. It was meant to teach a lesson that nobody would ever forget. And it was so severe that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be scourged. And yet, you see that Paul, who you know earlier from Acts, is a Roman citizen. He doesn't say anything up until now. Why is that? Because for the sake of the message of the gospel, he doesn't want to inflame the Jews by saying, Hey, I'm a Roman citizen, by the way. It's not until he gets into the barracks, he's out of the earshot of the Jews, and he's tied up to the whipping post. Cicero actually wrote, to to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder. And so Paul, he's calm here, he's not fearing the law, he hasn't disobeyed the law, he's trusting in God who's over the law, and he just quietly kind of asks this question. In verse 25, look down your Bibles, it says, he asks, "Is is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And then you have this picture of the centurion, and he's alarmed. And he hears this, and he goes and tells the commander. And the commander comes up to Paul and asks him if he indeed is a citizen. And Paul says yes. And the tribune, he's concerned. And he goes and tells the, and he says, wait a minute, can this be true? I had to pay a big, a big sum. I had to pay a bribe. There was no legal way of paying a sum to become a citizen, but it was common practice in that day, that, especially in the reign of Claudius, that you would pay a bribe to become a Roman citizen. And so he says, I had to pay a large sum. And yet Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth. Paul wasn't bragging, but what he meant was that he inherited his citizenship from his father and at least implied that unlike the tribune, his family, at least at one time, had been a well-regarded family of social standing. And yet he didn't use that until he was sure it wouldn't cause problems. And so immediately those who were examining him by torture, they withdrew. Tribune was afraid that he'd get in trouble for binding Paul as a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And yet we see in the, midst of, in the midst of Paul's imprisonment, in the midst of facing the law, God used the law to rescue Paul. And, and what can we learn from that? We can learn that, that today we can trust in God to use unrighteous laws and unrighteous men to carry out his purposes, to carry out his plans, to carry out God's purpose, which was back then to carry Paul to Rome. Today, we can trust that no law is greater, no ruler is greater than God's plans and his purposes. And we can trust God as we see here what it looks like for a Christian to create the legalists in the law. We don't have to be afraid of the law. We're also not a threat to the law, too. Paul wasn't disobeying the Roman law. He was seeking to submit to the Roman law. And God actually used that for his protection. In the end, nothing was going to stop God's plan to use Paul to carry the gospel to the world, despite the opposition that he faced. You and I have been called to be witnesses for the gospel. You and I have been called to, in the face of legalistic people, in the face of people who are trusting in their own ability, their own righteousness, to to not be self-righteous, but to identify with people. Because 
we too once were trusting in our own ability. We were called to point people to see that God saves by His grace. None of us were saved by our own ability. None of us were saved by our own merit. None of us were chosen by God because somehow we had it all going on. And God thought we were a really good catch. We can see as we look back what it looks like to be a Christian, to relate to legalists and the law, that Paul was trusting in Jesus, the righteous one, to make him clean, just like our continued hope is trusting in Jesus to wash away our sins. We, we shared communion this morning, and I love the reminder that we have whenever we take communion, that our hope, our confidence is, is solely in the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. Our trust is that we could not pay the penalty that we deserve to pay in our own bodies, and yet Jesus paid that penalty in his own body. And that's what we remember when we eat the bread. It's a symbol of his body that was broken for us. And that's what we did this morning when we drank the juice. It was a symbol of his blood that was shed that only his blood can wash away our sins. Now, that's not literally but that's trusting the fact that his blood was the sacrifice that was necessary as, necessary as payment to wipe away, to wash away our sins. Trusting in the righteous one makes us clean. And then we see that Paul understood that the good news was for everybody. It wasn't just for the Jews or one class, one sect of people. Everyone needs to hear the good news. And then lastly, we can, we can see that in relating to the law and the legalist, we can trust that God's plans will succeed. No matter what we face, no matter what the opposition looks like, God has appointed us for his purposes and his plans. And and no matter who faces us, no matter how great the power might be, no matter who might be in power, God's plan for us will succeed because he's appointed us, just like he appointed the Apostle Paul, to carry out his word, to be his witnesses. Together, we, we can commit to trusting in God as we face legalists and the law. Let's stand. Matt, if you go ahead and bring the band up, we'll sing together. Let's pray as you're standing. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would not put any confidence in our own ability We wouldn't put confidence in how we feel. We wouldn't put confidence in our flesh. We wouldn't put confidence in our own merit. But God, just like we began this service today looking to your sacrifice of your son, I pray that we would trust wholly and only in you, that we would not trust in any merit of our own. And Father, I pray that you would give us a love for others who are trusting in their own merit that you enable us to go to them lovingly, compassionately, to identify with them, to point them to you. And God, I pray that you would make us effective witnesses for your glory, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you enable us to trust that your plans will not be thwarted. In your name we pray. Amen.